So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. And g'day, Andrew in Melbourne, uh, who says, Ollie, I very much enjoyed last week's show, although I have a sort of complaint. Every time you and Ollie Peart spoke to Siri, my iPhone paused the episode. Eventually, I had to resort to headphones so Siri couldn't hear you. I wonder how many other man fans had Siri, Echo or Google confused by your experiments with voice activation. Uh, Many, Andrew, according to my mailbox. Debs says, Ollie, my husband is convinced you deliberately tried to activate Siri as often as possible in the zeitgeist last week. It kept overriding my maps whilst I was driving to an unfamiliar part of Leeds. Uh, And Lee, the osteopath, uh, says, I found my phone regularly pausing the podcast after picking up the Google commands. This was hilarious until Google Maps thought I wanted rerouting to Finden. Uh, (laughs) I can't think what we said that sounded like Finden. But um, look, Lee, it's a historic town. It's where the Doomsday Book was completed. Why not take a detour on us? Follow the brown signs. Uh, (laughs) Good news, though, from Giles from Northampton, uh, just down the road from Findon, in fact. He says, Ollie, I develop Alexa skills and have started work on a modern man skill for you. How exciting is that? So uh, in a few weeks' time, it should be possible, man fans, Giles is, is going to keep me posted on this, but it should be possible to ask your Amazon Echo to play an episode of our show without it bringing up Old Men on a Mountain or The Muffin Man. Uh, so thank you, Giles. And uh, thank you as well for pointing out that you're not just motivated by altruism. I didn't know this. Um, but apparently one of the reasons people make Alexa skills is that if they get certified and attract enough downloads, then you get freebies. He says he's had uh, a free Echo Dot and an Amazon Christmas bauble. Um, and uh, if you want to check out some of Giles's previous work, uh, he says he's the designer of the What Is My Dog Thinking skill. So if you ask Alexa what your dog's thinking, it will give you a phrase your dog might be thinking right now. Uh, the What Is My Cat Thinking skill... Uh, I'd be terrified to actually know what my cat is thinking. She's a psychopath. Uh, And Name of Thrones. That is Giles' skill, which generates a random Game of Thrones-sounding name. All terribly useful stuff, I think we can agree. What a time to be alive. Uh, Right, uh, this week's middle feature is the life story of an Australian guy called Manny. He was born into ultra-Orthodox Judaism uh, and then suffered sexual abuse at his religious school. So... His story gives both a fascinating glimpse into a very insular community you rarely hear from in the media, yet is also depressingly familiar from other stories we know, particularly with regards to the Catholic Church. So, content warning, the interview does include descriptions of his abuse and the trauma thereby, Um, but he's a great speaker, very compelling, searingly honest, uh, and I think his experience really sheds light on the fact that this kind of abuse and the cover-up afterwards, it happens everywhere. It always follows a pattern, whichever institution you find it in. Uh, it's well worth listening to. Um, also on today's show, you will learn exactly what happens in Peterborough at quarter past 11 on a Friday night. You will learn what Cindy Lauper might put on her privates, and you'll learn which app you need to download 
to stop yourself looking at apps. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. I'd be playing basketball in the backyard, and because he was in charge of security and access to all the offices and all that, he was just always around. Closure and disclosure. Surviving abuse in a tight-knit community. If you just use the weight of your hands to drag your jaw down. And Alex Fox pays lip service to tipping the velvet. But first, it's the zeitgeist, all the trends you need to know about for the week ahead with a man who, as a child, sang at Slough Football Ground. It's Ollie Pitt. Got a standing ovation. Did you? Yeah. Sympathy. Uh, What are the big trends this week? Fortnite. Drake and Ninja sat down to a spot of Fortnite on Twitch the other week. (laughs) I'm going to show you what it is. Watch this. Okay. Oh, yeah, I forgot you guys can't hear each other. Yo, Drake, if you hit the circles when you're farming, it does twice as much. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, I have a, a lot of supplies. I mean, uh, materials. Uh, okay, it looks like Doom, but it's outside, and um, a man's walking around with what is that? A chisel or a gun? And um, he's hitting things. It's a video game. What's special about it? So Fortnite is now the most watched game on Twitch. Is Twitch know, we've, that we've video Twitch platform? Before. Yeah. Well, we challenged you, didn't we, to narrate live video games? Yeah. So it's basically a platform where uh, gamers can broadcast themselves live yeah. playing a computer game. Yeah. And there's a chap called Ninja who used to play a game called Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, and recently he swapped to this game, Fortnite. And the reason he swapped is because Fortnite released a version of their game called Battle Royale. Now, a battle royale is when up to almost 100 players are dropped in the same game and the last one standing wins. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that this format of gaming is hugely popular. How do you play it, though? I don't even know how you play it. Is there a website? How do you get on you it? You can play it online, yeah, for free, on your PC, PlayStation 4, Xbox, or on a Mac. So yeah. that's Okay, so your trend, basically, is, is not that there's a new game in town. It's that this idea of battle royaling any existing format might cause it to become more popular. Yeah, so the uh, Player Unknown's Battleground, that previous game that I mentioned, when they released their uh, battle royale version of the game, it, it was the most successful game. Like it, this is this was the game that people wanted to watch and the game that people wanted to play when it came to sort of live streaming and that kind of thing. So um, does that show that actually, in these MMOs and open world games and everything, that really? When everyone was telling us that the only limit was your imagination, it's all about, you know, following your own path and not having to deal with rules and, you know, explore open worlds. Really, there's still a human desire for there to be one ultimate winner. I think so. And also, because of the way that those games operate, it's not like a traditional game where uh, you have an end goal and you win and you complete a level. Yeah, it's gone forever. It changes every time. So every time you enter a Battle Royale game, it's completely different because you're playing completely different people. And did money change hands for Drake to play this game? As far as I know, it was simply a promotional thing. Seems unlikely. No, because Ninja... He's genuinely cool. Ninja, this online gamer guy, he used to play a game called Halo. Have you heard of that game? Mm. Professionally. He used to get paid to do it. But he realised that streaming online through Twitch was far more lucrative financially for him to do it. And his audience is huge. Like, it is massive. You're talking about millions of people watching simultaneously in play games. So in other words, Drake Drake may have gone on his channel promotionally in the same way he might play on the Graham Norton show. But there's still a benefit for him. He's still trying to sell records by playing a video game. Sure, but he's appealing to like 12 to 15 year olds. Okay. Right, what else have you got for us this week? Poop per face. Excellent. China is a very technologically advanced nation Mm -hmm. and recently they've taken an active interest in facial recognition technology right the latest incarnation of which is to dispense toilet paper 
in public toilets. So is this like they recognise that the last time I went for a poo I used three sheets rather than five and dispensed the correct amount? Yes, exactly that, according to The Atlantic. <laughs> Surely not. What? I just, because I just made it up and it's well, ridiculous. No, 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 I'm absolutely serious. What, I mean, what's the purpose of that? Well, you go into a public toilet and uh, assuming... No, no, you're just saying what I said, but no, no, what's no, no, the no, point? But, well, because toilet paper costs a lot of money, right? They'll only dispense, according to the Atlantic, 23.6 inches per person per poop. Ah, uh, OK, so this isn't about customizable amount of dispensing paper. It's about a restriction on the amount of paper each person can use. So they yeah. can say, no, he's had 20 sheets already this week. Yeah, but not weekly. So it'll, be, it'll just be on that, on, on that occasion. So if, basically, if you go in yeah. and you just had a bout of, you know, you, you yeah. know slightly dodgy... I think we're all on the same and you page. went back in 10, 20 minutes later, yeah. it would say, please try again later. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. It, 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 it wouldn't. would. It would. That is what happens. But then you, you would have poopy pants. It would. Well, yeah, exactly. But, but what but, would be... Why? What's the benefit of that to anyone? Well, because they're saving money on... Um, on loo paper. You, 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 you are, rightly deserve to have that toilet paper if you need it to wipe your bottom. Well, in all honesty, I think the real reason is probably much darker. So they have other uses for fecal... Fe, fe, fecal. <laughs> fecal they have other, other, other uses for really fecal recognition. It should be. It should be a recognises each anus. <laughs> yeah, but they use it for other things as well. They, uh, it, they've recently put it, put it in place to stop people from jaywalking. It doesn't just capture you and then you get sent a fine. It takes your photo, it takes your video, and within 20 minutes it knows who you are and it displays the video of you committing the violation and your ID, like your citizen's ID, mm. on a big screen. <laughs> In so you're that, publicly shamed. You're publicly shamed. And you get the option at that point to pay a fine of around $3, uh-huh. do a half-hour course in traffic rules or spend 20 minutes assisting a policeman in controlling traffic oh my god 20 minutes assisting a policeman obviously I'd pay to do that anyway I would literally commit the violation especially (laughs) if you're actually involved in penalising people for breaking traffic rules I mean that's a prize I'd love to stand outside my own house and everyone who goes over 36 miles an hour you could do it there's a woman that does it with a hairdryer why don't you just do that what have you not seen that? No. There's a woman that stands outside her house with a hairdryer pointing at traffic so the traffic slows down. Yes, but she's obviously insane. I'm not talking about, <laughs> I'm not talking about using a household implement and pretending that it's a traffic device. I'm saying I'd like to contribute to the some knowledge of my local police station and get offenders who are speeding outside my house. Well, you're a good my citizen. You should probably move to China. Yes, I, I'm not sure those two things go together, but okay. But they're using it for a much bigger reason. The government are actually launching a, a programme called the Social Credit System. The idea is that you accumulate credits for good behaviour and you lose credits for uh, bad behaviour. Like a credit score. Exactly. But in real-world situations. Right, and you just told me that I should go and live in China. Well, you'd do all right because you'd be there going, oh, he's speeding, just, you know, discrediting all those untrustworthy losers. Um, Okay, well, it's uh, time for you to feed back on your response to uh, last week's challenge. I must say that you don't look bruised. No. I'm disappointed. Yeah. Last week, Manfan Brett challenged you to take up para ice hockey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did it go? I got asked to turn up to uh, an ice hockey rink in Peterborough mm-hmm. at about quarter past 11 at night on a oh, really? Friday. Why yeah. do they train at night? It is literally the only time they can get on the ice. And uh, they can only get, at the moment, they can only afford an hour every two weeks on the ice. And that's the only time they can get it at half past 11 till half past 12. What? Yeah. It's is, it, is it the only time at the weekend, maybe? No, Surely it, on a Tuesday at 7 o'clock no, in the morning. they can't get it any other time. That's the only time they can get it. And the guys, there's very few places that do para ice hockey across the country. But it means that 
they drive from miles and miles around. So you've got people arriving at half past 11 at night on Friday, and then they're leaving at half past 12, and they might do, some of them drive two and a half hours to get there. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So what do they do when they get there? So I saw a load of people in full ice hockey regalia. Uh-huh. You know, all the, the pads, the whole lot, the helmets, all that kind of thing. And I met uh, a girl called Naomi, who basically is the chairman of the team she looks after all the stuff makes sure they got all the right equipment and she told me a little bit about the kit that they have because mm-hmm. it is slightly different from ice hockey the first thing you notice is they don't have the long sticks obviously they've got two short sticks they're probably about two feet long mm-hmm. and then on one end they've got a spike a very sharp spike mm-hmm. that you can stab yourself with if you're not careful and in games sometimes people might I'm not saying they do it every time but they might deliberately give you a little jab really yeah been known to happen what is the thing because you you mentioned this when i immediately sort of last week suggested this idea your first response was oh people hit each other in ice hockey is that really a thing that is an actual thing so i've seen two ice hockey games in my life one in denmark uh which is their national sport and one in the united states and both times i saw fights and the one in the states it was like right you a fight kicked off and it's they give an allocated time slot for them to basically punch each other in the face and then they then they stop it but you're allowed to do it. What? And that was a friendly game. So you've got these two sticks, and then you're on a sledge. And on the sledge, it's not like a normal toboggan where you've got two rails running either side, mm. like a foot apart or anything. You literally have a single blade at the bottom that just sits just underneath your bum. So you're sat with your legs sticking out right in front of you, and you've got this blade under your bum. But because I was new and hadn't done it for very long, <laughs> yeah. I had two blades, probably about four inches apart. Okay, so you were like, on a starter sledge. I was on a starter sledge. And then your legs are out in front, and then they're strapped onto a bar that's on the front. So you, you can't move your legs. What they say is that if you're able-bodied, you can play this as well, because when you're out on the ice, actually, it completely democratises the situation. Everybody's equal, yeah, because you're just equal. using your arms to power yourself. Yeah, exactly. And so, actually, what was the nature of most of the players' disability, or could you not tell? Yeah, there was a real mix. So there was um, an amputee there who had a serious motorbike accident. Uh, there were uh, serious spinal injuries, and there was a chap who had polio when he was growing up. It, was, it led to him having a disability when he's older. Right. Now, a real mix. When I was out on the ice, I could totally see why these people did it, because, oh my God, like, they are hurtling along so, so how did fast. you fare? Uh, I can show you. <laughs> oh, have you got a video? I've got a video. Oh, amazing. So this is me here, the yeah. one in the black, right? So on, see I'm on the right. On the right. Yeah. You see I'm propelling myself. Yeah. Oh, you're ahead. Yeah, yeah, doing yeah. all right. Yeah. And then got to go for the puck. Completely miss it. Oh, there's the puck. I'm down. You're, oh, I'm, I'm down. On your face in yeah. the corner of the ring. Yeah. Did that hurt? Uh, no, but there was one occasion where you sort of like, I went round, and because I got the two blades on my one so I go and try and make a turn and the blade dug in and I flipped over and the stick went like that and I felt the spike at the bottom Ooh. go into my abdomen and it luckily it just sort of like skimmed off a bit but it, I just thought he could seriously enjoy. I wasn't wearing pads so they had to go easy on me and that's the way they hit those pucks right they, if that puck hit me in the, the chest that's a broken sternum yeah, I wouldn't want a broken sternum at midnight on a Friday in Peterborough. No. Okay, time for your challenge for this week. Ollie Pitt, open the digital envelope. Okay. Alan says, I run a small business and I need to find an innovative way to advertise for a small amount of money. I feel your pain, Alan. So I'd like to challenge Ollie to get his face in the most impressive place for a hundred pounds? <laughs> Question mark? Yeah, it's a good challenge. Well, just my face. Well, he doesn't specify, does he? He said impressive. He did, yes. But what does he mean by that? Well, that's side what we're of an airplane. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
Really? Yeah. I want you to get your face in the most preposterous place by this time next week. I mean, ideally a billboard in the centre of town somewhere, but I'll take a digital screen. Just my face. Just your face. Where can you get your face, but for a budget of £100? If you think you can help Ollie get his face somewhere that you're involved with... Yeah. <laughs> sounded wrong, but you know what I mean. Uh, for example, like if you... <gasps> a tattoo on someone's back! Uh, yeah, I guess. I'll that's, give someone £100 to do that. Yeah, I'd give someone £100 to put a tattoo of you on their back. Yeah, absolutely. I was yeah, That's quite renegade. I was thinking more like perhaps you work for a local arts centre and you've got a spare billboard outside. But sure, tattoo on a back, fine. Yeah, that's uh, not impressive, <laughs> is it? You, you can help. No, but it's quite amusing, isn't it, if you end up in, you know, Yeovil Puppet Theatre. Anyway, whatever. If you think you can help, uh, then get in touch through our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, and if you've got a challenge for Ollie for next week's show, do the same. Good luck, Ollie. Thanks. I look forward to seeing you around. You will. Everywhere. Hello, man fans. I'm Tony Wrighton. I'm a Sky Sports presenter and a specialist in NLP. That's Neuro Linguistic Programming. And these are my life hacks on how to be more motivated with NLP. You may be wondering what the hell NLP is. It's a very, basically a very long name for a set of techniques that is used by millions of people around the world in therapy, communication, sales, productivity. Think of it as neurohacking, and that'll give you an idea of what it's all about. Tip number one. So to be more motivated, it's all about chilling out and maximizing your downtime so you can maximize your uptime. And the way I do that is meditation. And don't worry, you don't have to go to a meditation retreat in the jungle to do this. You can just sit quietly for a few minutes each day. Tip number two links to the first. It's putting the tech away and smelling the roses. We check our smartphone 110 times a day on average. And me, I put mine away and I switch everything off for at least two hours a day. And almost always it's the best two hours of my day. So put the tech away. These tips are really about maximising your downtime. You know, we live in a state of constant overstimulation. We've got so much to entertain ourselves that we're never at our most productive, at our most creative and our most relaxed. So if you maximise that downtime and chill out a little bit more, then when it comes to switching on and having the big ideas and being more productive, you'll have more energy and motivation to do it. Tip number three, when you do come back online, there's an app called Freedom that helps you stop frittering away hours every day on, I don't know, The Guardian or Facebook or WhatsApp or whatever it is. You install Freedom on your phone and you can ban certain apps and websites at certain points during the day. It works for me anyway. Well, for more information, you can listen to my podcast, which is Zestology, and uh, you can also check me out on Sky Sports. Now, how big is your family? Perhaps you have two sisters or brothers or three. Uh, I've got none. I'm an only child. Well, Manny Wax grew up as one of 17 children. He was an ultra-Orthodox Jew, part of the Chabad sect in Melbourne, Australia, and his family lived across the street from the Yeshiva Centre, a religious school where all his education and all his extracurricular activities took place. It was a tight-knit community you rarely hear from in the mainstream media. I started by asking him what a typical day in his childhood looked like. 
well, you wake up in the morning, um, I would have had already a responsibility for a younger sibling. Um, in my case, it would have been maybe a two, three-year-old uh, would have been responsible for changing their nappies. The older children, you need to make sure that they do homework, prepare lunch for school, going to synagogue, of course, first thing in the morning. Before that even, you would go to immerse yourself in a mikvah, a male ritual bath, to cleanse yourself both physically and spiritually. And then from there, you go to the synagogue, pray, then to school. And of course, within the school, there was religious studies for the first three, four hours in the morning. And then for the remainder of the day, about half or a little bit more than half, we had general studies as well. Uh, Maths, English, science, the basics. But the emphasis clearly was much more on the religious studies and the religious context and environment. If the Lubavitcher Rebbe suddenly decided to give a speech from New York, we used to run to synagogue and have a listen to the live hookup from New York. And presumably prayers throughout the day, right? Prayers for washing your hands, prayers for eating, prayers for drinking. Minimum 100 blessings a day is expected. Wow. And I mean, look, if you just pray the morning prayers, which, mind you, includes thank you, Lord, for not making me a woman and <laughs> thank you, Lord, for not making me a Gentile, by the way. So once you get um, through those, the morning prayers, you've probably got a solid 50-odd blessings already. And then each time you eat, uh, before you eat, after you eat, uh, go to the bathroom. After the bathroom, you wash your hands, you got to say a blessing. 100 blessings is easy. Now, you were born into that, so you didn't know any different. But what was your instinct about it? It was very natural. I mean, we grew up indoctrinated that our sole purpose in life was to bring the Messiah. That's it. The way we bring the Messiah is through worshipping God. And in some ways, more importantly even, was to almost worship the Lubavitcher Rebbe. For us, he was a godlike figure. If you go to Chabad houses around the world, you will see massive photos of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, even though he has passed on you know, since 94. So uh, oh, so it's not like the Pope. There's not a new one. No. It was the one man who really brought the Lubavitch to a more mainstream, wider that's, sect. That's correct. There are, I mean, within Chabad, since he passed away, um, there are different streams. Mainly there are those who still believe he's the Messiah and going to resurrect himself almost, which is a very un-Jewish type of approach. Uh, but then there are others who believed that he had the potential to be the Messiah, as we believe in ultra-Orthodox Judaism, that in every generation there is the potential, one person is a potential to be the Messiah, there are 36 um, uh, secret uh, tzaddikim, holy men, and uh, and they are men only, of course. So it was really about um, doing everything we could to be better people and to, to do kindness and good deeds for the sake of bringing the Messiah so that he, we will be worthy of receiving him. It wasn't just about us and us becoming better. It was at least on the same level to go and reach out to other Jews around the world or around us to try to bring them closer to Judaism. So Judaism isn't a proselytizing religion, but if you're Jewish, that's all Chabad cares about. And they will try to get you to do as many mitzvot, as many commandments as they can for the sake of of bringing the Messiah. And I remember when we'd come back after finding someone uh, who'd never put on tefillin, phylacteries, and he's, you know, 50 years old. There's a certain word for it, which I forget what, what we say in Hebrew, but we'd come back after, even from a very young age, eight, nine, ten, walking for miles to do these types of activities. And we'd come back and say, I got someone who's never put on tefillin today. We'd get together and have a l'chaim, you know, not, not as an eight-year-old, but um, as a 13 or 14-year-old, and celebrate that because, wow, that's going to be a step, massive step forward to bringing the Messiah closer. So actually your job would be to find people like me. I was born into Judaism. I've now married someone who isn't Jewish. I'm not practicing, but from the Chabad point of view, I could still... I be would part be, of the next Messiah. I would be sitting here, if I was a Chabad Jew, trying to 
make Judaism as attractive as possible for you to possibly find something good in it and interesting so that you will take something and, and start practicing in your home and your environment with the expectation that you will see so much beauty in that that you will become, you'll want to join us almost. Were you happy? If I'd have asked you when you were nine years old, what would your answer to that very question Very happy. Be? At the age of nine, ten, yes, I would have been very happy because my life seemed very fulfilling. It's really about community, love, affinity, looking after each other, especially when you're a nine, ten years old, uh, ten-year-old child who doesn't really know what's going on. And then it was as part of being uh, at Chabad in, uh, what's the name of the religious school that you went to? The Yeshiva Center. The Yeshiva Center, right. It's so, Yeshiva College. The Yeshiva Center was synagogue, had a number of different um, organizations under it. And the Yeshiva College was the school for the boys and Beth Rivka College for the girls. And so it was in that environment in the Yeshiva that your abuse began. Talk me through that because sadly there wasn't just one abuser, but talk me through the first. It was, yeah, always a difficulty to know where exactly to start because, you know, there's always the grooming process that happens, which I've now come to learn. It's not as if, uh, you know, growing up what they taught us so much about this issue of dangers, but just stranger danger. So if there was anything about warning kids about potential dangers, it was be careful of people you don't know, Mm. don't get into a car with a stranger. Whereas in the Jewish community, in our community, there's no such thing as stranger danger because as long as you have a, a beard, a kippah, a hat, someone who looks like you, He's a pious Jew. He cannot harm you. Mm. So it was in that context where um, Velvus Robansky, who uh, was the son of a rabbi, uh, one of the most senior rabbis of Chabad in Australia, and he used to read the Bible in synagogue, in my synagogue, every Shabbat, every Sabbath. Um, and he went, we went through a grooming process without going into the details. But then on one night um, during a Jewish festival of Shavuot, which is customary to stay up all night to study the Bible or religious text, even as a young boy, I would have been about 11 or 12 years old. So this would have been about 87. I wanted to have a rest upstairs. It was about one in the morning. All the men were staying up downstairs. And upstairs was the ladies' section. None of the women were there because it's only for men to stay up. I went to lie down and I realized someone was following me. I realized it was him soon after. And for some reason... I sensed something was wrong. Hmm. Didn't obviously couldn't put anything together because again, talking about education, there was no sex education. There was no uh, body safety uh, discussions. So you know, and certainly not anything happening by people in, in your community who look like you and a part of that. So um, I went to lie down, rest. I, I found a spot. I remember actually someone was, another child, two, three years older than me, was lying down. So instead I could have gone anywhere. I went actually very closely to him. Again, I thought it was probably a defense mechanism in some ways. Uh, and then I, re- I shut my eyes quickly, pretending almost to be asleep, but knowing full well that um, he would know that I'm not asleep. And he came and kneeled down beside me, and which I saw soon after when I opened my eyes. But he started stroking me on my legs, worked his way up and and touched me on my genitalia and on on the clothes only. He started unbuckling me and was molesting me. And then he got some sort of guilty feeling that and and said, this isn't appropriate for a place like this, meaning that somehow it was okay to do it, but just not inside a synagogue. And he basically asked me to follow him and we went to the women's bathroom. Again, no one was there. Uh, and um, the things, the, the abuse deteriorated much more. And What were you thinking when he said, come with me to the women's bathroom? I, I remember that I, I just froze when he started touching me, molesting, you know, even on the leg. It was, I knew something was wrong, but I had no language and no thought about what exactly was going on. So I remember just freezing and just lying down and hoping something will stop. And, and eventually I remember opening my eyes and just seeing what was going on. Um, obviously felt very uncomfortable. I remember my stomach feeling all sick, but I kind of also f- 
when he said that, I went just like as a like a robot. He said, I followed. That's See, it. that's because when you said you wanted to, you know, not dwell on the grooming process. Actually, I, I am curious how it's possible for someone to persuade you to follow them to be abused unless the grooming process has been really quite meticulous. I, I'm curious what he did to get you into that position. Look, um, what we now know is part of the grooming process for, for, for any perpetrator, most perpetrators, is that they find the vulnerabilities and what it is you are lacking as the victim, as the prey, potential prey for them. And in my case, as someone who comes from a very large family, there would be limited opportunities for attention, I guess, mm. um, love, also, I guess, um, any treats. But most importantly, in his case, what I remember was he in the yeshiva center, this big backyard, and he had this um, old car, which was like a bomb, as we used to refer to it. And I remember the color now as well, light blue. And he gave me the opportunity to drive the car as an 11-year-old, 11 or 12-year-old, wow. in the backyard. And we did it a few times. And so really, you were thinking then, oh, this guy's great. He's yes. like, he's like, he's like, you know, my best mate and he's like my dad. Yeah, I mean, there was a bit, you know, some weirdness to him that I never really knew about, um, but or couldn't couldn't really put down to understand. But it, I also felt that, you know, he's actually giving me a lot of cool opportunities. Then, you know, if I have to put up with anything, I was like, whatever, it's okay. But I get to drive a car. None of my friends get that. I get to get treats and I go, just the things that, to, to have the attention from an adult. Mm. So it was just things that obviously I was lacking. Perhaps I didn't even know that, didn't realise it that, at that time. Of course. Okay, and so what was the nature of the abuse in the bathroom then? Oh, well, it, it, I can say that it wasn't rape, mm. uh, thankfully, but it was... Um, uh, it, I, really, it's difficult for me to even talk about it. I mean, I've given police statements and, yeah, and discussions, but it's, it, was, it was on the, on the fairly bad side. Okay. And, um, you know, I just by the end of it, let's just say, I had my undies and pants um, down my a- ankles. I was basically blacked out. I remember just getting up. Um, I mean, I remember him naked. I remember me naked. I remember our private private parts not being private anymore and it was just it was very very traumatic and um i mean at that age as well because you said very eloquently that you didn't have the language to actually contextualize what was happening to you yes i mean this is a personal question but but sex had you had sexual feelings by that so you had directions were you aware of the sexual world at all I mean, to be perfectly honest, I I can't say so unequivocally that I did or didn't um, but I do know that I had no idea what was happening it was just all alien to me. I wouldn't have had access to pornography or things like that. That came much later. Um, so, you know, did I have a sexual thought at any stage? Did I have an erection at any stage? I don't recall having it, um, but I certainly recall that I didn't understand what was going on no, except I mean, I to know that something was wrong. Was okay. It? So how did you deal with that? Did you did you tell someone or did you just keep it to yourself? Well, uh, I remember going to the, leaving uh, the place and going home straight away, not telling anyone initially. Um, the abuse happened a couple of more times, at least twice more in a different synagogue where we used to read the Torah because this was at the Yeshiva Center. He used to read the Torah somewhere else. And um, at some point I did tell uh, a close friend of mine, my, my best friend at the time, I didn't go into the details, but I shared it in a broad sense. And a few days later, I guess in some ways I was testing to see how he would respond. I actually remember myself testing a little bit. So um, I can't remember what exactly I told him. But all I remember is that within a few days, I was being teased at school, being called uh, pufta, gay, 
those types of words. And, and, and it wasn't just the words that was being used. It was I, I, I felt always that I was then being treated in a way that there was something wrong with me, that I did something wrong. And that was done in front of teachers, in front of staff members, in front of, you know, on the weekend we used to go to youth group events. I, I was shocked at how the fact that was, everyone knew, seemed to know about it. Corporal punishment was quite common in those days. I mean, it's different than, you know, to give a cane. I got a cane once as well, but, but I used to get belted at home as well. Pants down, boom. So I used to get home after, you know, during the time of the abuse. I used to come to the house and uh, my parents used to know, used to get uh, advanced information that I was suspended or kicked out of class. Uh, I used to see my dad. As soon as I walked into the house, go upstairs to your room. I knew what was coming. Um, my my dad would get the belt out. My mom would sit on the bed, say, pull your pants down, your undies. And I used to get, you know, 10 beltings like that. That was often in the home, a very common way of, of a punishment. But corporal punishment wasn't common in the 90s in Australia, was it? So that it was something that was still happening in the yeshiva like it was the 1960s, basically. Um, in the yeshiva centre, yes. I, look, it wasn't common everywhere across the board in the yeshiva centre, but certainly for the religious children of religious groups. I remember a, a teacher getting a bag full of coins the, the, from the bank and just whacking a, a student over the head with that. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it wasn't uncommon to experience violence around you from the perspective of discipline. Well, at least that's what they felt they were doing, disciplining us children using violence. So it happened three times, you say? At least three times that I can remember, and that, that's what I gave the police statement. I uh, made it very clear to him that I didn't um, I was, I didn't want to do this anymore. I, I don't know what um, gave me the courage to do that. I wouldn't have said I don't want to do it anymore, but he, he understood from me that that was it and I wasn't going there anymore. So I was able to extricate myself from that position. Do you remember him telling you not to tell anyone? No. No, I, I specifically remember that he didn't say anything um, to threaten me um, or to keep silent. It was just a given. I was, as I said, I just felt so shamed and guilty about everything around it. But then there was a second abuser as well. He was a karate teacher. He was a member of the Chabad community in charge of security. He was a black belt in karate. So a 12-year-old hero in many ways, but especially in, in our context in the community where I remember many um, any anti-Semitic incident or when non-Jews came to our property, Cyprus was there. He was the guy. He was the guy that we would contact and we would sit there and watch him take on people twice his size and, and, and come out. Uh, very proud and and all of that. So, it was it was it was someone that we looked up to, and the the abuse started in in a very mild way, relatively mild. Uh, he'd pick me up and some of my siblings. Um, he'd put the other people people in the back of his van, and uh, I'd be in the front. He'd make me sit in the front next to him. As soon as I'd walk in, I'd, I'd go into the car even before I'd close the door, and even I remember some of my siblings sometimes were right behind me, and he had such brazen guts to to do that, molest me like that, just on my clothes, quickly just touch my genitalia. And and it just became common practice. Every time I came into the car, that's what he did. And he got away with it every time. So over time, I just became accustomed to it. It's part of the price that I have to pay for this. And the price you have to pay for what? Well, for hanging around with him, for going to his karate classes, um, I used to hang out with him a lot in, in the yeshiva center because we lived across the road from the yeshiva. I'd be playing basketball in the backyard and because he was in charge of security, had access to all the offices and all that, he was just always around. So, And it was amazing to be around next to someone like that because I guess people would know that I'm. he's kind of protecting me in some ways. Mm. 
But then I, I started acting out, responding to the abuses that were going on both with him and, and previously with Velvel. And, uh, in was, what way? Well, it was showing – my parents – saw that, uh, you know, when I'd go into the house and start wearing, we weren't allowed to wear jeans even and shorts and those types of things. Like, until a certain age, and I can't remember the exact ages, but those are the types of rebellious activities that I would have started with, but I wasn't interested in, in, in studying for my bar mitzvah. So I was rebelling in that way. Uh, I was doing, uh, wasn't doing very well in school, um, but my my parents decided to speak to the rabbis and um, they all came to an agreement that if he's rebelling and he's not showing that he's uh, religiously observant as, as he should, well, we need to infuse him with a whole lot more religious activities and, and, and environment. So I was sent to Israel, um, to Bnei Brak, which is the focal point of um, of religious activity in Israel, that and Mea Sharim, which is in Jerusalem. And I went to a full-time Jewish studies, Cheder it's called, um, uh, they said my brother and I, who, he was one year younger than me. How old were you at this point? I was point? 12 and my brother was 11. Wow. And that was the last time we had studied uh, secular studies. We started doing religious studies from that age until the age of 18. Wow. So six years full-time curriculum in Israel. Well, no. The, the, so we were there in Israel for uh, about six months or so okay. for a period. But then we came back to Australia. And, um, and for the rest of the time, we just did religious studies as – both a, a program uh, uh, with the Yeshiva Center. They allowed us to go in a little bit earlier, younger than some of the other kids. But essentially, that's what we did. Religious studies, full-time from the age of 11 or 12. My brother was 11, I was 12, till the age of 18. Obviously, the religious environment and all of that didn't quite work the way my parents and, and the community leadership expected. Rather, I actually um, continued to rebel, I guess, in, in many ways against the system. I forced myself to eat not kosher food. I forced myself to desecrate Shabbat, getting kicked out of school regularly, um, substance abuse, those types of things. And it was very clear that I was going down a very troubled path. And until the age of 18, I went back and forth, kicked out of a Melbourne yeshiva, went then in Sydney, kicked out of both places twice. And a lot of people actually just didn't understand the reasons. I thought I was just rebelling. And I just remember, as soon as I could get out of Australia, I got out of there. And that was at the age of 18, where I could go to Israel, the Israeli government. I met Aliyah. They paid for my ticket. And I just got to Israel. That's all I wanted to get, to escape, to run out of there, leave the community with the intention of going to the Israeli army. National service is something you have to do if you live in Israel. It's something that I guess you're brought up to maybe want to do in some circumstances, particularly young men. But it's not something, typically, that people leave a country like Australia to choose to go and do. If they're going to go and live in Israel, it wouldn't be to serve in the army, which is pretty much the worst bit of being an Israeli citizen, isn't it? Um, look, I mean, some Israelis absolutely look at it as a as a as a service and a duty, and they're very proud of that. Uh, I think, and, and this is more in hindsight, and I had the opportunity years to reflect about it. It's it was really a way to escape and to, in some ways, even reclaim my manhood, my masculinity. Um, so was it because I guess what I was getting at is it's almost like a kind of self harm. It's putting yourself in harm's way, but you see it as something that was emboldening too. Yeah, I, I, I still don't see it that I, I was putting myself. I mean, I wanted I wanted a bit of action. I'm sure as an 18 year old kid, you know, you're looking for a bit of action as well. But I think you know there was other, there were other important elements of firstly getting out of Australia, and then if I'm going to go to Israel, what am I going to do there? And I thought about going to the army already for a while. Uh, my my mum's brother, uh, my uncle, had been killed in the Israeli army 
um, in the late 60s, but my parents weren't supportive. One is because my mum had lost a brother, but also because um, the Chabad community, certainly back then, it was, wasn't an any ultra-Orthodox community. They don't um, support going to the army. So it's not as if anyone supported me or suggested it. It was me, I think, just wanting to go and prove that I can just be physical and be the man that I needed to be and that's expected of me. How did it go for you? You know, I had the experience. I went, I served in the uh, in the territories. Um, I did the training. I was in a, a Golani brigade. It's an infantry unit. But then as a lone soldier whose parents lived overseas, you're categorized as such, I had the opportunity once a year to go overseas to visit the family. And at the age of 20, 96, I went to Australia to for my sister's wedding. And it was then that I heard uh, about the issue of child sexual abuse. I'd been thinking about what had happened to me, obviously, probably on a daily basis and, and reacting to it in a number of ways, whether it's through physical activity or substance abuse or whatever it was, but it was really um, in my mind a lot and there was a lot of anger. But when I heard on the radio from Australian police saying, if you have any information about child sexual abuse, we encourage you to come forward and share it. It was then that the penny dropped. Like, hang on, that happened to me. I instinctively went downstairs to my dad's office and told him about it. So we're talking about the issue of language and not knowing how to express what happened. I didn't even realize that I could go to the police. I didn't even really understand that a crime had been committed. Mm. I didn't really know what a crime was. To me, a crime was if someone steals, if someone murders, if someone does those things. But what is that? How did your father react when you told him that that's what had happened to you? He was supportive. He asked a lot of questions just to, um, I mean, he just wanted to confirm what it is I was saying. I mean, he was shocked by it. So he just wanted me to restate it. But to his credit, which is, um, um, he contacted the police straight away and informed them, which is very uh, unique in the ultra-Orthodox community. In the vast majority of cases, and especially those that I've come across, uh, the parents would put pressure on the children not to take the matter further uh, for a number of reasons. It's about reputation for the institution, but most of the time it's also about protecting the interests of the family. They're standing in the community, uh, not to harm the potential marriage prospects for their siblings uh, and other family members. So that... Did, did you feel that burden too, that by telling the truth, you might be endangering the position of your family within that community? Because I'd already been out of the community for a couple of years, I didn't, and again, I didn't really even understand that I had to report it to anyone until then. So everything just went through so quickly. Was that taken seriously straight away? Look, I, I thought the police tried to take it seriously, but they went to interview the perpetrators. One of them, Velvel, the first one, was already in New York, so they couldn't. They interviewed the second one. He obviously um, denied anything happened. And they came back to me and said, due to lack of evidence, we are going to leave the case open, but pending further information. But at the same time, I also went to the rabbi, the head rabbi there, the late Rabbi Groner, and he, uh, I didn't even have to say more than two, three words. He knew exactly what I was talking about, and he said to me straight out, you don't need to do anything about it. We are dealing with a case. And, and he told me later on that he was, they were seeing a, a psychologist, and, and the chief rabbi himself was involved in the case personally, and he's monitoring. And he told me a couple of years later, he said, um, when I asked him, and Cyprus was still there standing in charge of security, responsible for kids after what they'd known that he had done, because obviously they believed it because they were treating him, quote unquote. And I asked him, you're keeping him in this position, access to kids, free access. Can you assure everyone that he's not reoffending today or that he won't in the future? And he said, no. I just walked out of his office that time and just, I, I couldn't believe it. And he was there until the late 2000s for many years later. 
I mean, there's just so, I mean, obviously what you're talking about is very familiar from the stories we've heard of the Catholic Church as well. Yeah. But there's such an obvious contradiction, isn't there, between an institutional cover-up and an institution which claims to be making people virtuous. There's, there's one word that I use now that probably sums up for me the fundamental issues I have with in both my experience in the past and today, what I see, hypocrisy. It is everywhere within the ultra-Orthodox community. And the reason I have a particular issue within that community, as in the ultra-Orthodox world, is because if they want to lead their lives in this way, fine, go right ahead. But if they put themselves up on a pedestal and claim to be a light unto the nations and try to recruit people to be like us, because we are the setters of morality and of religiosity, we are it. You see repeated hypocritical actions and views, not just in the context of child sexual abuse, but in all areas. And that's something that I, I just cannot put up with anymore. Just when I see it, I, it turns my stomach. I should say what you look like physically. You have short hair. You're not wearing a head covering. You don't present as an Orthodox Jew in any way at all. When did that happen? Well, at the age of 18, really, when I, I remember getting onto that plane, my parents took me to the airport. As soon as they went, I took my kippah off on a permanent basis for the first time ever. I got on the plane, I had a razor in my hand where I had a small beard, like not even a beard, just some hairs on my mustache and whatever else. And um, and because I was still in the Chabad community, I had to keep it. But I had the razor and I went after takeoff, I went into the bathroom in the plane and shaved the bits of hair that I had not knowing at the time that I needed to use shaving cream. <laughs> and I ended up bleeding everywhere. And I remember putting tissues to cover the blood and going back to my seat with a whole lot of tissues around me. So How did that feel the moment that you took your kippah off? Freedom. When I went to the airport I f and my parents dropped me off, and for me it was freedom. I'm leaving Australia, leaving my community, leaving the my past behind in many ways. I felt free for the first time. I remember on the stop-off on the way to Israel in Thai airport, I got my first um, cool haircut, so to speak, you know, because until then it was always just, you know, at number one, or number two, short hair, uh, standard, you know, all one size. Um, but there it was, it was, I was taking steps to become a normal, quote-unquote, member of society. And so when you came back to Melbourne when you were 20, did you look like you look now? Yes. How did your parents react to that? Well, they let me stay in the house as long as I remained in the attic in the house and away from the <laughs> other kids. Literally, there was an attic. Uh, we had to go up a primitive ladder. Uh, we, you know, I saw that as they were being kind because just the fact that they let me stay in the house was nice. Uh, but yeah, when you think about that that, that, that was the intention to segregate me so the younger kids won't learn from me. And I do understand them. Especially at the time when, as a parent, you, you're going through and trying to raise your kids to uh, follow your footsteps, which is the you know religious lifestyle. And you've got an older sibling um, who, you know, a lot of them would look, look, would look would have been looking up towards me for, um, for guidance and whatever. So that was an issue. So they wanted to keep me away. Once I got back to Australia, I had to catch up on all my studies, of course, because, as we said, um, I didn't have any secular studies from the age of 12. So I put myself into year 12 equivalent, VCE. I got, uh, so I got that, which allowed me to go to university. I went to, I did a Bachelor of International Relations. Um, you know, in the beginning, it was, it was very difficult because my language, my, my uh, language skills were terrible. And socially, I mean, meeting other students of your age, your frame of reference would have been so different as well. I would sit there sometimes just saying, Yes, yes, nodding to what they were saying, having absolutely no idea what they were talking about, in particular anything around TV and uh, mm. music. I mean, even till this day, I am completely clueless about many things. Um, 
So yes, it was. It was absolutely. It was a. You had to teach yourself, um, and, and you, you need to actually make a conscious effort to do that. And I used to do that through, you know, for example, about um, the, the English language. I used to, at the end of a conversation, when I didn't understand a few words, I just go right. I used to walk around pen and paper, write a few words, go home at night that night, a few nights later, and just look up in the dictionary and write down the meaning of each of those words. And then after a few times, my uh, vocabulary really improved. Do you remember an example of one of those? Oh, the, I mean, I remember I was actually, uh, yes, I do remember one word, uh, and I was a teacher's aide briefly, even before I had any degree in one of the Jewish schools. They thought I'd be good because I've got so many siblings, so I helped out a, a number of kids with different um, issues, learning difficulties. Um, so I was teaching one of the kids, and, and uh, the word was indifferent. Mm-hmm. And I thought, indifferent, but not, not different. Well, it's not. That's completely that's wrong. That's yeah. not what it means. And it took me, I remember a while later, I was like, oh my God, I taught that kid indifferent was completely wrong. So it was basic words, some were even simpler. I remember writing my first essay in English. That would have been when I was 25, 26. I'd never read a book. That was my first time I read a book because they forced me to read a book for English for class. Um, all the books I'd read before were religious texts, uh, which is why till this day I've got an issue with, with reading books. For me, books remind me of religious texts because that's all I ever read. And to cut a long story short, when you got your qualification, you ended up in a managerial position within a, a Jewish organization in Australia. Correct. And that was when you felt you had a voice and you could do something about it. Yeah, this. well, I started engaging. I, I became the head of the Anti-Defamation Commission and combating anti-Semitism and racism, and I got it to interact with the media. I worked my way up and I became the vice president of the Jewish community in Australia, the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. And that's when I felt, this was 2011, if, I've, if I'm considered a senior leader in the community, I need to take a leadership role about this issue because no one had until then, and I suspect that no one else would do that. And I realized it was going to be very difficult, and I discussed it with my ex-wife. I mean, she was supportive, but she didn't have much of a choice, really. She saw that I needed to do it because I needed to get justice, I needed to protect children, and, and I was on a mission. And that's when it started. It was on the 8th of July, 2011. It was front-page news in the Age newspaper in Melbourne. As a result of that expose, many victims went to the police, including about David Cypress, the, my second abuser. Was he still head of security at that time? He was involved in on various boards the Council of Orthodox Synagogues of Victoria, for example. So he was putting himself, as often these perpetrators do, in positions of authority so that when someone comes out and says, he sexually abused me, mm. the victim has no credibility, but the perpetrator does. The first One of the first things I got was a lawsuit defamation from his lawyer saying that he's going to take me to court. Give him, they gave me 30 days to respond. Wow. How but, did that feel? Because you must have thought in a way, well, bring it on. Exactly. I'll take you to court because so, I've got the story. That's exactly right. So the first, initially I was uh, shocked, but I spoke to lawyer friends and, and they said, look, truth is a defense. And that was the first time I, I'd learned that concept. And that's when I, exactly the words I said, I said, bring it on because this is my day in court. The police didn't have enough information, anything like that. I said, okay, we'll take it to court. I didn't even need to worry about that because over the next few months, uh, about 15 victims went to the police about Cyprus himself. Um, he was ultimately charged. He's now sitting in jail for eight years. He got eight years sentence for sexually abusing nine children, including myself. Um, there were others who couldn't go on with the case for a number of reasons. But we do know there are many other victims. There's no doubt dozens. Um, statistically, uh, each perpetrator has over 100 victims. So we know that there would be many others. My first perpetrator, he's still in New York. Uh, in fact, I had last night correspondence with Victoria 
Victoria Police. Uh, I went um, still in New York and practicing, practicing as doing, a rabbi, reading. Not, I mean, he's, he's got a day job, but he reads the Torah um, on the on the Sabbath and the like. And I tried getting justice. The problem is lack of evidence still because it's my word against his word. And if he was in Australia, the police would investigate. The problem is they can't seek ext- extradition just for that. So what did I do? About just over a year ago, I went with a, a friend of mine who was an undercover journalist. We got a recording of Velvol acknowledging that he had abused me. But what he did was he basically blamed me, even though he was about 25 years old and I was 11 or 12. He said, I'm sorry that I hurt you, but I, I did it because I loved you. I was taking the lead from you. So he was blaming me for the abuse. It's all on the public record now. So I gave that. How, how did that feel hearing that? It was a tough weekend, you know, it was a tough few days before and a tough weekend after that. But it was also a relief in some ways because I got some answers. Uh, and one of my, the questions I was seeking to clarify, is he a danger today? And I walked away from that. And anyone who saw the footage walked away knowing 100% that he is a current danger to children. But I provided that material to the police. They reopened the case as a result. Another victim has now come forward about that. So they've now got a much more robust case, but it's still a process. They've had it for over a year, and I just happened to speak to them in the last uh, couple of days, correspondences, and it's they're dealing with it. It's just a long process, bureaucracy seeking extradition. And as a result of this sort of snowballing inbox of people around the world getting in touch and saying, this has happened to me too, inside the Jewish community and outside, this has now become your job. It has. I mean, it depends how you define a job because I haven't been on a salary for the last uh, three years or so, to be honest. Let's call it your crusade then. My crusade. Um, How how does that affect you, though? Because what you're doing on the one hand is you're taking a bad experience that happened to you and putting it to good. You know, as a result of being involved in this crusade, you are helping hundreds of people who have been involved in a similar situation. No doubt about that. But on the other hand, here you are with me reliving the whole experience again. That's what you're asked to do as part of that process on a constant basis. Yes. Which can't be good for you. It's not. It's not good for me on the one hand. And um, look, there are benefits and disadvantages to it. The benefit is it's part of the healing process in that I am taking something, a terrible experience, traumatic experience that happened in my childhood, and I'm turning it into a positive by helping so many others, whether it's victims of abuse, whether it's their families, uh, whether it's institutions now, Jewish communities around the world, as a result of my work, have now got policies and procedures in place about this issue. It's now a topic of discussion. So yes, I see all the positives. On the negative side, as you rightly point out, I relive it. I have vicarious trauma. So not only my personal trauma, the vicarious trauma of so many victims who have shared their stories with me. Some of them are harrowing. Uh, and some of them presumably are happening now. Oh, absolutely. At the talk last night that I gave, someone came and shared with me very briefly their story, and I've become better at creating boundaries to protect myself a little bit better. So I experienced that uh, trauma as well. But whether it's a secondary trauma or the primary trauma that I've experienced, there is the impact, the ongoing impact. And I'd never realized what that was because I thought, you know, I was doing certain things, whether it's substance abuse or, you know, relationship issues, communication. I thought it just, that's my personality. But you start to learn that it is directed um, or comes from the abuse, at least part of it. And a good example is um, having grown up within the Chabad community, for example, going to therapy is something that was frowned upon. You go to therapy if you're messed up. Unfortunately, I learned the hard way in many ways because I, I was working way too many hours, helping too many people, neglecting myself and my family. And I had a, a, a very difficult few years in the last few years. Also, 
we had to leave Australia because of the responses from some of the leadership, including some of the most senior rabbis uh, in Australia, Chabad officials from around the world, um, attacking myself, my family. My parents were forced to leave Australia. In what, in what way attacking? Oh, Manny Wax wants to bring Chabad down. He's anti-religious. He wants to bring the institution down. He's exaggerating the abuse. He wasn't even raped. He was, it was just molestation. The, the, those types of things. Um, On the internet. On the internet primarily, but in, in other contexts as well and behind our backs. And there was just, it, it's all on the public record where people actually, all they have to do is Google. I mean, even the, the head rabbi of the Yeshiva Center was yelling towards my, directed at me and my family, even though I wasn't there, my parents were there. Who gave you permission to speak out about this issue, to undermine his, his father-in-law, Rabbi Groner, by saying that he didn't deal with his issues, by putting our community under the spotlight and bringing it into disrepute as if mm. I had done that and was responsible. So the leadership, not only the Chabad leadership, not just the, 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 the religious leadership, the mainstream leadership as well, not only they didn't support me. In some cases, they even led the campaign against me and my family. That it was so, it was, it was a few years of absolute misery and nightmare. But I, I just. What's, what's motivating that, do you think, apart from wanting to protect the senior leaders within their own organizations? Is it, is it that because Judaism is a minority, there's a feeling of, well, if we're going to be in the media, it shouldn't be for this? There are a few reasons. I think if we look in the Catholic Church and other places, it, they all try to cover up the rep- for the reputation of the institution. So I think that's the, the similarities across the board, uh, whether religious institutions or sporting clubs and the like. We saw that in, uh, in the US now with the gymnasts and the, mm. and the swimmers, exactly the same thing. We've got unique issues within the Jewish community where, for example, Holocaust mentality, we don't want to attract anti-Semitism. We don't want to give fodder to the anti-Semites. And if we say we're pedophiles amongst us, well, that will just add to that. Then there's the issue of disbelieving. I mean, people genuinely within the Jewish community don't believe that other Jews can behave like that towards children. And And I had mainstream Jewish leaders who weren't religious. When I initially spoke out, they said, I never thought that it happens within our community. Not just child sexual abuse, also domestic violence often took a while, but, but that we already made, made headway in that regard a while ago. But ultimately, we had to leave. We went uh, to France temporarily until we decided where we were going to go. And that's when a lot of the depression, anxiety, suicide ideation, I mean, even to this day, a lot of these things I still experience as I've, I've been diagnosed with those things, take medication. I mean, these are things that are very difficult for me to say. What is the one thing if you could just choose one thing that has to change about the way that society deals with the victims of child sexual abuse? Well, the one thing is really the culture, because up until the last few years, it was really something about covering it up and not necessarily intentionally, because let's not forget, most child sexual abuse cases happen within the family environment, in the context, whether it's a family, a relative, a neighbor, a tutor, whatever it is. Well, that's the interesting thing about your story is that really, in a way for you, the yeshiva was your family. Correct. You know, you're describing like an uncle type relationship, really, with a lot yeah, of these teachers. Absolutely. And, and, and the fact is, so if we change the culture from being quiet about it, and we just talk about it openly and discuss it, the perpetrators thrive on this code of silence that exists, not just within the Jewish community, more broadly. So we are seeing this progress. We are seeing this change. I would say that it's going to take a generational shift. I started this campaign in 2011. Where we are today is a world difference from where we were a few years ago. And I'm certain that in another 10 years, we'll be significantly more progressed as well. 
But of course, we've got broader society and we've got Jewish community. And within the Jewish community, you've got different segments. So the ultra-Orthodox community, the benchmark, that they, the, the, their starting point was a lot lower than where the rest of society was. So again, we're seeing significant progress there as well. But as we consistently see around the world, there are still cover-ups, there is still intimidation going on, especially within the ultra-Orthodox community, especially within Chabad. It's shocking, and it's more shocking to me that they still don't get it. And mind you also, I think it's important to say, not just the ultra-Orthodox community, even the mainstream leadership, even the UK here, when I bring matters to them, to their attention, they have consistently mishandled this, these matters. And it's appalling because the way to change is through leadership. And that has been lacking, and I sincerely hope that with the work of so many people, myself included, we are going to get to that level eventually. Manny Wax. If you'd like to hear more of his story, he has a book. It's called Who Gave You Permission? Uh, and he has a blog. There are links to both on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And if you've been affected by the issue of child sexual abuse, there are links that may help you on our website too. Still to come, a record of the week, and Alex Fox up next after this. It's time to talk about love and romance and sex with the goddess of sexpertise. It's Alex Fox. The oddess of sexpertise, I would say. What have you been up to this week? I have been a guest at Eroticon, which is a convention of people who write and speak about erotic matters, such as me. And not a series of sex emojis. You can get sex emojis, you you know. Can Can you guess what a vacuum might be, Holly? I mean, it sounds like a vacuum you put your cock in, but I don't know. (laughs) Well, just for a quick spring clean of the peen. (laughs) It's a big person-sized cube. It's sort of like a a scaffolding structure, if you will, Mm -hmm. that's covered in sheet latex. And you climb inside it, and then a vacuum is applied. They suck all the air out with a hose, and the latex tightens around you until you are held within this cube, uh, immobile, and, and you can be suspended in the air if you want. And it's for people who are really into S&M and yeah. bondage. Oh, I guess that, yeah, rather than for David Copperfield to produce in his next <laughs> age show. But. They also had one that was sort of a, a lay-down vac bed uh, where people were stretching out on the floor and then having this latex text sucked around them with with a head hole I should say there's there, there are, there are holes it. for breathing uh-huh. uh, and seeing if you wish to right time for our listener question which as ever is sponsored by our friends at mycondom.com mycondom.com stock ID juicy bubblegum and passion fruit lubricants and the bottles look like something straight out of 1982 they're kind of like they give me uh, 80s hair salon vibes. Oh, right, yeah. They're Cindy Lauper, pink bedroom. Precisely, yeah. yeah. They look like what Cindy Lauper would put on her uh, cooch. So right. there we go. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, right, and the question is... Girls from, just want to have fun. Uh, well, girls just want to have cunnilingus, arguably, according to <laughs> Charles in Canada, because his question is, uh, I absolutely love going down on my girlfriend, as does she, but I'd like to be able to do it for longer. Currently, I can only go for about 15 to 25 minutes, uh, which is enough to make her come once or twice. But I would love to be able to go for an hour or more. The problem is my tongue, mouth and jaw get sore and tired eventually and I have to stop. So are there any exercises or tricks for making those parts of my body stronger, tongue, mouth and jaw, stronger, so I can eat my girlfriend's pussy all night long? 
Wow, Charles is ambitious when it comes to serving himself multiple portions of flan flange there, mm. isn't he? He's very, very enthusiastic. Greedy, perhaps. <laughs> or very giving, however you want to look at it. An hour is a very long, a time, long time, although I'll applaud that because as we've discussed in the past, most women need a sustained, prolonged period of clitoral stimulation. Fingers around, and ears, yeah. la la la. <laughs> In order to orgasm. So to that end... Not with me, Alex. Just need to look at me. (laughs) (laughs) To that end, I asked a pal of mine for tips. And maybe this is a little off-piste for the foxhole. Mm -hmm. But I had a chat to Dusty Limits, who is a fantastic male cabaret compare. Do you know, I didn't need to have that described. The name's very evocative. I got an impression just from the name. Well, he sent me a variety of mouth, jaw and tongue exercises, which he uses himself before he goes on stage and which he advises people doing any type of, as he put, uh, oral exercise and or performance uh, just to do before they start the show, if you will. So, Ollie, maybe you want to give some of these a whirl. Sure. The first thing that Dusty said is that you need to loosen your jaw up. And he explained that a lot of people carry a lot of tension in their jaw. Mm. Uh, if you grind your teeth at night, that can be a problem. But a lot of us just do kind of bite down and, and clench a lot during the day. I'm doing it now. Uh, yeah, I notice that like I do it sometimes before, yeah, yeah. before I fall asleep. I, I often suddenly become aware that I'm clenching my jaw, usually in anticipation of whatever the hell I've got to wake up to the next day. But yeah, if you are tense in your jaw, that can be uncomfortable if you're then doing a repetitive motion such as cunnilingus for a long time. Mm-hmm. So Dusty suggests... First of all, put both of your hands on your face Mm -hmm. as though you are copying the Edvard Munch painting, The Scream, and then stroke fairly firmly downwards Mm -hmm. with the idea of just pulling your jawline forwards and down. If you just use the weight of your hands to drag your jaw down Uh with those stroking motions, you should actually feel the back of your jaw gradually open up, a little bit like you're an anaconda or a python. Yeah. Okay. So if you do that for a while first. Yeah. Warm up exercise. Yeah, well, yeah. precisely. Yeah. You're feeling warm now, Wally. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've got mm. my, I mean, my mouth's naturally hanging down a bit further, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to make any comment about you hanging down. Uh, next ex- exercise from Dusty is to loosen the tongue. Uh-huh. And he says uh, you can move it side to side in your mouth, uh-huh. precisely. Now, um, you said precisely. <laughs> you looked a bit scared when I started doing that. Uh, my did, tongue was poking out. You're not just you in your mouth. You kind of look like a, a Rottweiler on a hot day. <laughs> <laughs> so just side to side in my mouth. Yeah, uh, okay. well, you can point it out if you want. He says you want to try and um, put your tongue as far forward in your mouth as is comfortable as, mm-hmm. as possible to, to, to try and sort of um, activate those tendons and get blood m- rushing towards that muscle. Mm-hmm. So first you're doing side to side motions, then uh, up and down again with your tongue forward and then do clockwise and anti-clockwise mo- motions. Dusty actually uses the word widdershins, which I haven't heard for a while. It sounds delightfully quaint. Or as a font. He says, if it helps you relax uh, into the motion, mm. you can make some noise. So you can go like, ah, if you wish to. I mean, we're beginning to get into unsexy territory now. Uh, to be honest, I don't think any of this looks particularly seductive. I suppose the idea is, though, perhaps, you know, if you know that sex is on the cards and it's coming, then maybe you could do this as part of your toothbrushing in the evening. Precisely. I mm. think this is a bathroom-based yeah. part of your routine. It would sound all right, wouldn't it, coming out the ensuite? Yeah, it's go just on, a bit weird. Gargle with your Listerine and do your... 
your dusty yeah. limits exercises. Bit weird as you go down, I would say. Well, it's only going to get worse okay. in terms of non-sexiness because his final tip mm. is to loosen the lips by blowing first like a horse. So, you know, that's sort of like... <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. then uh, blow raspberries. So that is so. I'm like your son. <laughs> Sorry, that's the least sexy noise I've ever made. It isn't particularly sensual, yeah. but it does help to loosen up the face, which Charles might find helpful mm. uh, before he gets in position with his lady friend. And that's my next tip: the position, um, because although um, in his letter Charles mainly focuses on how much his face sort of hurts after mm. 25 minutes of repetitive exercise a lot of people find that their neck and their shoulders or the whole body can get uncomfy if they're trying to hold one pose for a while so it's a good thing to switch up positions when you're going down on someone and but there are also bits of kit that you can get frisky frolic based furniture that can help you uh, both you and your partner be more comfortable Excellent. when you are indulging in this does it store under the bed well a you friend of mine Ideally, there are bits that will flat pack, but there are also things that have inbuilt camouflage, if you will. They're okay, disguised right. as something totally normal and non sexual, so you can legitimately get away with just leaving them lying around, okay. even when you're not getting laid. Um, a pal of mine, Kara Sutra, who writes a really good blog where it, it focuses on reviewing Your friends sex have very stories. different names to my friends. <laughs> um, she recently reviewed this new product called the Kaziti Discreet Seat Queening Stool. Mm-hmm. Now, have you heard of queening before? Sitting on someone's face. Yes, sometimes involving scatological or mm. uh, water sports in, indulgent uh, pleasures, but sometimes simply it's somebody sitting on another person's face so that cunnilingus can be performed. Mm-hmm. And this stool is made of tough, see through perspex, and it kind of looks like something you might just have in your bathroom as a stool to sit on to do your makeup or. It looks pretty innocent. It doesn't have a hole in the bottom. Yes. But then it doesn't look innocent. The holes are on the sides. So you stand it one way during the day, so it looks completely and utterly unremarkable. And then you flip it around, so the hole is more... um, suggestively positioned when you wish to use it as a specialist item. Okay. But it's something that's worth checking out. No, absolutely. I'm going to Google it and see if I agree that it's as discreet as you claim. Uh, Other things that Charles might want to try are introducing a toy. As any kind of standard vibrator will give him a rest and will also add to the stimulation of his partner. That's a good idea. Better time out. There are toys as well which simulate the feeling of oral sex so he could give his mouth a rest but still continue that particular type of sensation excellent two of the most famous ones include love honey's squeal which sort of looks like a little you know those mini personal fans you can get Mm. it looks a bit like one of those but with lots of little silicon tongues attached Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. it one thing i will say about that is those that love it adore it Mm -hmm. but definitely use it with lots and lots of lube because otherwise you are repeatedly slapping yourself on the flange with little tongues that can cause quite a lot of friction Mm. dragging Mm. no one wants that there's another one by lilo which is called the aura this is a quite a different design it has a silicone surface with a little ball bearing that moves underneath the silicone in a circular motion Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a mock tongue but in a very different way some people find with this toy that when they increase the pressure when they when they push it harder against their body that gets in the way of the ball bearing going round and stops the motion which is sort of it 
counterproductive. It, do, it doesn't always work for everybody, depending on your body. But again, for those who love it, they adore it. Good to know those toys exist as well for the gentleman who doesn't enjoy performing cunnilingus as much as Charles likes it. I think it's important for me to state that as much as I give praise to Charles for his enthusiasm and for his desire to want his girlfriend to re- receive even more pleasure than he's already giving her... He should check that an hour of oral sex is actually what she wants. Mm. She might be perfectly happy with 25 minutes and she may find that 60 minutes and above is actually too much for her. She's either getting a bit bored or a bit sore or she might just get too used to that same motion. And that actually segues quite nicely into a final note on technique. Now, some people, when it comes to oral sex... They like the the movement to be switched up quite a lot. Have you heard Prince's song Alphabet Street? I don't recall that, no. Uh, Well, one of the lines in it is, I'm going down to Alphabet Street. And lots of people have said that that's a reference to spelling out the alphabet Mm. on somebody's clitoris during oral sex, during cunnilingus. Different shapes, yeah. That is a good way of making sure that your mouth doesn't get tired because you're producing, you're you're doing different motions with your tongue muscle and with your your lips and your jaw. Uh, And for some women, it works really, really well because they like that, um, those different, motions they don't know where the tongue's going to land next so it feels more exciting and the anticipation is, is is thrilling for others though they get off much better if the motion is one repeated singular kind of like lick or flick or whatever happens to work for them as ever and i know i sound like a broken record here the key is communication mm. ask your partner what they like ask them what they want take pleasure in listening and really learning to their response and that's the way to have a damn good night in while you're eating someone out uh thank you alex if you have a question for miss fox to resolve in next week's edition of the foxhole then you need to head down to our website modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click feedback and if you head on over to mycondom.com you can get 15 percent off absolutely everything on the site with the code foxhole that's f-o-x-h-o-l-e And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new Manbassador. It's Duncan in Leeds, whose fiancée Taylor wrote in to say, We're getting married on Good Friday. We love the show. We listen all the time. I finally got round to buying you all beers for your good work. So please, Ollie, could you tell Duncan I love him so much, he's a wonderful man, and I can't wait to be his wife. I certainly can, Taylor. And I can go one better. Duncan, I now pronounce you Manbassador for Leeds. Congratulations to both of you. Uh, music now, and our theme is by the wonderful Django Django. Their North American tour kicks off in April. And this is our record of the week. It's called Dans Le Mar by French-Canadian Jean-Michel Blay. And it's out now. If you're waiting for the vocals to kick in, they don't. Uh, I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday.
So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.